This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. George Orwell wrote, Being in a minority, even in a minority of one, did not make you mad. There was truth and there was untruth, and if you clung to the truth even against the whole world, you were not mad. Hello and welcome to the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host, and I'm pleased to welcome Hussein Abu Bakir Mansour to the show today. He is director of Emmett's Program for Emerging Democratic Voices from the Middle East, who was born in Cairo, Egypt, to a family whose other son became a jihad-inspiring imam. Hussein's personal journey took him from innocence to hate, to political prisoner, and ultimately to life in America, advanced academic work, and steadfast support for Israel. He joins us today to discuss the story of his journey in his new book, Minority of One, The Unchaining of an Arab Mind. Hussein Mansour, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Renee. You've written a very moving story of your extraordinary personal journey. What do you hope readers will take away from your story? What is its widest and deepest message? That's a great question. Um, the book seeks, first of all, to share my own personal story um, of how I experienced life grown up in Egypt um, during the 90s and, and the 2000s, up all the way to the Arab Spring, right before my departure. Um, so it seeks to to share um, my experiences and educate the reader on um, life in a society like Egypt uh, from the inside. But at the same time, it seeks to do multiple things. It seeks to honestly um, expose uh, a lot of major social and political issues in the region um, that a lot of people might be uh, well aware of, but in general, it doesn't get attention whether... um, uh, in in wider discussions or even scholarly discussion in the Middle East, I would say that there are deliberate efforts to conceal and suppress discussions of a lot of the uh, deep issues of the region, um, Arab and Muslim societies specifically. So I wanted to be honest in exposing all of this, but I also wanted to do it in a very humane way that no matter how um, horrific some parts of the social reality and some of these societies are, they remain entirely within the domain of, of human life, of human activity. Um, and uh, it uh, also seeks to, after exposing that, to show that there is also hope for it to change. These things do change and can change and often um, uh, require a lot, of, a lot of work to change, but also to kind of use my own self to to show that process of, of change um, that comes at a very high cost, but nevertheless, it's, uh, it's, it's highly desirable. You grew up in a time of great change in Egypt. 
talk to us a bit about those changes and how they impacted your own family. I was born in 1989 um, in Cairo, middle class family. Uh, and uh, during that time, so Egypt was, you know, globalization was increasing. Egypt specifically was becoming more integrated in uh, the world economy. Um, so uh, there are a lot of social changes that were happening um, with that. But it's not really the changes that some people would expect that is becoming more international, becoming more connected to the world. Um, I mean, there was some of that. <laughs> Uh, or in effect, there was a, a lot of that. I mean, you, you had international brands proliferating, you know, American fast food restaurants everywhere. But at the same time, throughout the 90s, there was a gradual and creeping rise of a, an extremely austere form of religiosity. And uh, I saw this in my own family. So when I was little, when I was first born, you know, my, my early memories we didn't have really a single woman in the family that had her hair covered by the early 2000s. Every single woman in the family had her hair covered. Multiple had their the full niqab, which is the black cloth that covers even the face. Um, multiple men had grown out their beards, including uh, two of my uncles. Um, this happened within the span of, I would say, 13 years. Um, and it was fast, it was quick, it was drastic, uh, and people didn't talk about it. It just happened. Um, I was very sensitive to those changes for some reason or the other, uh, but a lot of people weren't. And I was also part of them, so I also became very religious with everybody else as they were becoming very religious um, in the early 2000s. But, um, but soon after, I, I stopped being religious at all. Uh, but those changes had a drastic effect and I would say corrosive uh, effect on the social fabric um, of Egypt. And there's a story that's not very dissimilar from what happened to a lot of Muslim societies, other Muslim societies during the same period. Would it be correct to say that uh, regardless of the government ideology, whether it was secular before your time, or socialist, or Islamist, that Egypt has always been conservative and authoritarian? Uh, yeah, I would say Egyptians are naturally uh, conservative. Um, if, so it, you're absolutely right about that. No matter what is the prevailing, uh, you know, zeitgeist, um, the people are uh, naturally conservative. Uh, but What's different is the revolutionary aspect. Um, so there's a difference between conservatism. I'm actually, uh, uh, you know, now I became to appreciate conservative thought a lot. There is a difference between conservative and reactionary thought. Um, reactionary thought is a revolution, but in the other direction. And that's basically what was spreading. What was spreading is not truly conservative. Conservative, you conserve what you got. Um, so you conserve the family structure, you conserve the art forms that you have. Um, but that was not happening in Egypt. There, what happened was a, a destruction of the family structure that existed, and a, a destruction of the habits that existed, the way that you do weddings. For example, when I was born or when I was young, 
it was very normal to go to a wedding, an Egyptian wedding. You have music, you have gender mixing, um, and you have uh, a belly dancer, uh, which is, by the way, not as erotic in the Middle East, considered to be an erotic form of dancing as it is considered in the West. It actually can be a family activity. <laughs> um, but, but but you can have a belly dancer, and it was very fun. I remember I've been to multi... I loved weddings, as most children do, when I was a child. But as everybody was getting this uh, revolutionary form of religiosity, this had to be thrown out of the window. You had members of the family cracking down on this, you know, breaking stereos and, and throwing them out, um, insisting on separating genders and wedding. That's not conservative. That's not conserving, you know, the customs and the traditions and the way of life. That's a whole new way of life that wants to de- completely destroy the old one. And I think that's what Western whether experts or scholars keep getting absolutely wrong about the Middle East. They think that it's just very conservative people. Um, it's a very conservative form of Islam that refuses to liberalize. You don't understand? No, it's not conservative. I wish it was conservative. It's revolutionary. Um, it's 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 destructive. Uh, it's, uh, what is the English word? Iconoclastic. Um, and uh, yeah. That's that's basically what was what was happening, and that's what you know. The extreme form of this then takes the form of jihadism, and takes the form of rebellion against society, rebellion against state, and rebellion against the world, the international community. A jihadist is not a conservative person. A jihadist is a person who leaves their family. They already abandoned. That's the most unconservative thing you can do. They, you know, a family wakes up in the morning and their son is not there. And he leaves them a note that he went to Syria. That's usually what happens. If you read the jihadist stories, that's pretty much what happens. Um, They leave the family structure. They leave the social structure that they were born in. And they go join a whole new one, a whole new vanguard in the desert that's going to bring a revolutionary change of, of, you know, Islamic utopianism. Um, so that that kind of thought that was proliferating in the Middle East since the 70s specifically and in the 90s, it accelerated for various reasons. Um, and then in the early 2000s, it exploded, especially after 9-11. All right. Let, let's look at some other parts of social functioning besides religion. Uh, what was life like and what is life like? for uh, minorities in Egypt, whether religious, ethnic, or racial minorities? Um, so the, the largest minority of Egypt would be Coptic Christians, uh, about 10% of the population, which is a, a, a big uh, number. It's over 10 million. I think by some estimates, it's the, the largest Christian minority in any Muslim country. Um, and uh, they live in, I would say, in an enhanced form of the dimitude institution. So there is a historical institution uh, that was part of Islamic law that's called dimitude. And basically, it was actually pretty advanced for its time, you know, 1,200 years ago. But basically, it was a political and social status, um, kind of like a second-class citizen status for uh, minorities and and for non-Muslims. So they get basic protections um, from the government, uh, and they, in exchange, they basically live in a submissive status to the majority religion and to the government. And that was historically the situation. 
And basically, you can say that the Coptic minority lives in a, a more modern version of that. So it's not canonized. It's not officially a second class citizen. So, you know, Egypt as a state, all states today pretend to be modern one way or the other. Everybody has to pretend to be, you know, democratic. You have you have some of the worst country states in the world have democratic even in their own title. So it's just, you know, Egypt has a constitution that looks pretty modern, but that's not really how the society functions. Um, the Copts are pretty much de facto uh, second class um, citizens. Um, they rely on the government to protect them from um, the mass hatred to, to Christians that, as I said, also unfortunately proliferated and grew quite substantially since the 1970s. Um, and in, ex- in exchange of this, they give the government unconditional um, support. But that doesn't mean that the government does, you know, a great job protecting them all the time. Uh, they, you know, they are treated um, in a very discriminatory way, uh, whether in employment, they are pretty much banned from certain jobs in the country. For example, if you're a cop, you can't be a gynecologist. Uh, because you have to see women, and the society does not want a non-Muslim doctor to see um, women. Uh, you can't be a gynecologist, you can't be in, in many jobs in the military or the security apparatus of the state, and so on and so forth. Not to speak about social discrimination just from people voluntarily who hold uh, very um, uh, bigoted views against Christians, and uh, occasional, of course, almost routine, uh, annual terrorist assaults on Christian places of worship and and so on. Uh, Christians in general view their situation in Egypt as that of persecution, and usually a lot of them try to leave, get asylum in Canada, the U.S., Australia, or other places. Uh, other readers of your book might, like me, be surprised to learn about the overt racism in Egypt that your Sudanese girlfriend experienced. Is the issue of skin color uh, or is it cultural differences uh, that makes for the um, discrimination between light-skinned Egyptians and dark-skinned African Egyptians and Arabs of other uh, national origins? Um. No, it's 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 just racist uh, views. It's uh, that just have a very very long history. Um, so dark skinned people were also very yeah enslaved in great numbers in, in North Africa and Egypt till very very recently. So even if you, so for example, if you watch movies that were produced in Egypt as late as, as the nineteen fifties, you will see all the servants, all the janitors are. Um, black skinned and they are dressed up in like special uniforms almost you know uh, these the, of, of servants um, if you uh, read uh, you know the novels of the great greatest Egyptian novelist I would say the greatest Arab novelist Nagib Mahfouz you will find for example in his masterpiece of uh, the, the um, the the three books about uh, the the Cairo trilogy, um, which talks about the life in Egypt um, during the World War One and and right after, you will find stories about people buying um, slaves as as late as that date. Um, so it's just it's it's a historical racism against people of darker uh, skin, which you would not expect because Egypt is 
pretty much in Africa. <laughs> Egyptians themselves, a lot of them have dark skin, including, for example, former President Anwar Sadat. Uh, so it's 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 a it's a it's there. It's uh, people. You know, when I uh, had my first girlfriend, who's black, uh, people really felt comfortable just telling me that. You know, this is awful. You should leave her. Why would you do this to yourself? Be with somebody who's so dark. Uh, so that's that's there. But sometimes you you still had a person as dark as Sadat being able to become president. So it's definitely it, the racism is there. However, it's extremely different than what what you would see in in Western societies. It has a whole different um, social composition and and structure. Uh, for example, you you would be fine having a black boss and, or a person would maybe would be fine having a black boss, uh, but he would not want to, you know, marry their daughter off to them. So things of that sort. Um, so the, the racism is there. I'm happy to say that in the past five years in Egypt, I would say a lot of young people became aware of it, especially with, you know, TikTok and social media. So, for example, people, you know, like some some hooligan youth would post a video bullying uh, some poor Eritrean kid in the street or a black kid in the street. So I'm, I'm happy to say in the fa- past five years, there were multiple times when incidents like this did arouse um, uh, anger from a lot of young people who then started campaigns to deal with the issue of, of discrimination against uh, um, against people with darker skin. But it's definitely there. And many times when I hear people in Western societies who are complaining about the eternal unforgivable sin of the West of being racist, I just want to tell them, just go to Egypt, go to Algeria, go to any of those countries and look at how black people are treated there um, to have some perspective on how the world really looks like. Um, but um, as I said, I, I hope that this um, issue gets, gets better um, in the future. When you were growing up, what did you know about Jews who had a long history in Egypt but were driven out or have fled before you were born? So this is, of course, the, the, the central part of my story and, and my life. Um, I grew up in an intensely anti-Semitic environment that was just part interwoven in everything, in religion, in politics, um, in uh, the national identity, um, in, in everything, in art, in, uh, in entertainment. Uh, anti-Semitism is just a solid, unquestioned part of the cultural fabric. Um, and as I said, it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter if you're religious. It doesn't matter that you're secular. It doesn't ma- matter that you're a leftist. It doesn't matter that you're a liberal. Um, you know, a jihadist, everybody agrees. This is kind of the glue that actually holds everything together. Um, the eternal victimhood of uh, Arabs or Muslims or Egyptians depends on who you are, but there is an eternal victimhood. It depends on on how you see things. Um, and that eternal victimhood is directly a result from a wolfish world in which there are major conspiracies primarily conducted by Jews. Uh, And you can be a little bit more educated and a little bit more savvy and say Zionists. And uh, kind of that's, that's the sophisticated version of it. Um, 
which w- w- it w- was not very common, uh, but that's basically it. And it really, really doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you, you know, you're an Egyptian nationalist, you're an Arab nationalist, you're an Islamist. You're actually somebody who has no political opinions at all, just like to sit on a coffee shop, smoke hookah, and play shishbish, and, you know, backgammon. And that's what the glue truly that holds everything together. Um, the idea that we need to stick together, the country needs to be stable because we're in danger. We're in constant danger. Um, and as I said, it, it plays out in everything. And when I was a child, I was obsessed with this because it's really, really very entertaining. It's like living in Lord of the Rings. You're living in the shadow of Mordor all the time. There is a Mordor. Uh, there is a King Sauron. And uh, they're out there. And it's real. Everybody believes it's real. So for me as a child, I loved it. I I waited. My favorite movies were movies about, you know, espionage against Israel or or Jewish villains doing conspiracies, which a lot there are a lot of Egyptian movies like this, a lot, a lot of Egyptian TV shows. My favorite books when I was little, it was called The Man of the Impossible. There are like 200 of these. It's a series like for children. And it's about this superhero, Egyptian Muslim superhero. It's named Adham Sabri. And he travels all over the world to foil one Jewish conspiracy after the other. Um, and that is truly the cultural reality. Um, I mean, people actually do believe that. And I'm talking about very normal people, like, you know, my own parents who are not terrorists or jihadists or anything. They're really, you know, hardworking people who try to raise their kids um, and deal with the difficulties of life. And they just believe this um, because everybody else believes this. It's on the TV, it's on the radio, it's on the paper, and so on. And despite this, uh, you were uh, tempted and brave enough to uh, have your first exploration of the literature of the infidels at age eight, uh, 13 when you bought a Bible. Tell us about that. Um, so, uh, uh, as I said, like I was born in 1989. So uh, when I was 13 or around that time, that was immediately after 9-11. Uh, the world was inflamed, right? So had 9-11 just happened, all of a sudden there is this thing called Al-Qaeda and those men with beards on TV all the time. Uh, the United States went to a global war in terror. Uh, war in Iraq, war in Afghanistan. And of course, the Second Intifada was also happening at the same time. And those who lived through the time remember how intense the Second Intifada was, all the terrorist uh, attacks, all the suicide bombings, uh, the, the, the famous story of the child, Muhammad al-Dura, where you know, there were footage of his father trying to protect him. And it was said that you know, IDF troops were trying to kill him, things of that sort. That was the TV, like 24-7. It was about... Um, the war on Islam, the war on Islam and on Islam in Palestine, the war on Islam in Afghanistan, the war on Islam um, in in Iraq. Um, so it was a period of major, major ideological inflation. Uh, everybody, um, whether the, the the old Arab left of Arab nationalism with its pathological obsessions with with Western conspiracies, um, a lot of inflow from the international left, and at the time the the the. The anti-globalization movement was very, very um, uh, powerful, and had it had its in, inroads in, in Arab culture. So you had also that uh, Noam Chomsky and the and, and the likes were con- you know constant guests on Al Jazeera. Uh, 
the you had the of course uh, Islamists and and the rights of the jihadist ideology, uh, and then you had also the freedom agenda of President Bush at the time, which angered a lot of Arab rulers, and they pushed more anti-Americanism in their societies to protect them from the influence of the you know the freedom agenda and democratization and so on and so forth. So this all of these elements together served as a trap that really radicalized a lot of people. Uh, because you turn on the TV and that's what everybody talks about 24-7. You know, Israel, the crimes of Israel, the, cr- the conspiracy of the, of the Jews and, and you know, the war of the United States against Muslims and Arabs. And so I got obsessed with this and I decided I wanted to, you know, get more into this. I wanted to find out what those um, infidels are, you know, are saying and what they are thinking. And of course, because I was I was getting... You know, I was young and I was becoming very religious. I was going to the mosque five times a day at the time. I thought, well, then I need to read their Bible in order to find out how they think. Um, and I waited till I had some money. And uh, then I, <laughs> uh, there was a whole adventure. I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about a lot of the details, but people can find it in the book. But I had to find a Christian bookstore. And of course, I didn't know how to get to a Christian bookstore. And the entire thing was, it was truly, for me, it felt like Frodo um, traveling to a whole whole different world. And and I was able to to do it and and get this Bible. And uh, I started reading it. And that, uh, you know, set me on a path of curiosity uh, that I, I would say I'm still on it till today. But basically, when I read the Bible, I did not really find what I expected to find. I did not find, uh, I did not find anything that confirms all the terrible things that I've heard about Jews and about Christians. Um, if anything, I did actually find some really nice parts that really uh, shocked me, uh, and how noble they are. For example, uh, um, you know, the Sermon on the Mount in in, in Matthew. Um, so yeah, and that led me to a path of learning to find out more about Jews, about Christians, and about the West, and, and that ended up completely transforming who I am. You also have a talent for languages and learned, uh, studied English, uh, and also Hebrew, uh, odd choice. We'll let the listeners find out why when they buy and read your book. Uh, but but those uh, skills led you to making friendships with non-Muslims and getting involved in activities that eventually led to imprisonment and torture. I won't ask you to re- reflect on those or revisit those experiences, but if you don't mind, could you reflect a little about how they changed you, how those experiences changed you? Yeah, Um they changed me a, a, a lot, of course. I don't think that I quite understand exactly, uh, you know, or, or can fully comprehend uh, the significance. But basically, after my unhealthy obsession with Jews and Christians in the West turned into um, a healthy, healthy obsession in another way, you know, a curiosity about the world and about how everything, I, I discovered that I do have a very deep passion for culture. I just love culture. I love languages. I love religion. Uh, I love literature. I love art. I discovered that I just love culture. And uh, uh, ironically enough, my obsession to go learn about those infidels who were, were engaged in an eternal war against 
actually is a, was my way to discover that passion that I'm actually passionate about about culture. Um, so by the time I was 17 and 18 or, or 18, it truly just it was just a curiosity and it's just this passionate nerd who's interested in learning about the world through learning about Judaism, learning about Jews, learning about learning Hebrew, uh, learning Jewish history. Uh, and Jewish history, of course, is very significant for this because of just that, first of all, the scale, uh, the historical scale of Jewish history. We're talking about one of the lengthiest um, continuous uh, histories. At the same time, the diversity of it. You had Jews, you know, you have Jewish history literally everywhere at every time, um, you know, whether in Middle Ages and in, you know, in the Middle East and and the Muslim lands or, you know, in Spain and in Europe or the Jews during the Enlightenment, you literally can learn about the thread of development of human history by following the threads of, of Jewish history. Um, so that was just, that, that opened a whole new world for me. Um, and I was open to people. I wanted to have uh, friendships with with people. And I literally threw myself at people. Like, for example, I, you know, once I, I hated Christians and avoided them. Now I just seek them. I find out, like, they usually in they congregate in, in for example, in college or a workplace. If there are Christians in the place, they, they have a spot for their uh, you know, where they get together, I go and just push myself in there and like force myself on the group. Um, and then I decided, of course, to do the big thing, which was the big taboo, which is to seek actually the friendship, friendship of Jews and Israelis specifically. Um, and I decided to visit then a, a part of the Israeli embassy in, in Egypt that doesn't exist anymore. It was called the Israeli Academic Center in Cairo. Um, and that truly opened the door for me to a whole new world of just, uh, you know, making contacts and friendships with a lot of Jews and Israelis. And just uh, it it completely changed the trajectory um, of my life because that's real experience. You know, I love book learning. I still do. Uh, but if a book is not about reality, it's really not worth much. Um, and by the end of the day, the real experiences is how you actually get to know. That's, uh, that's what I, how, how do you get to know things? So meeting Jews, meeting Israelis, um, that's it for me. It was the complete end with a whole, uh, worldview, pathological worldview, um, and then understanding that I need to do everything in my powers to help other people, my friends, my family, people, other people in Egypt, to see this, to to understand this, to understand that Jews and Israelis are just truly just people uh, like them. Uh, and as you said, that brought me to major clashes with the Egyptian government that eventually led to me having to flee Egypt and, and receive political asylum in the um, United States. But I, I don't regret anything of it. It changed my life to the better for certain. Finally, Hussein, uh, you wrote an article published uh, last month, July 2022, in Tablet Magazine, entitled The Liberation of the Arabs from the Global Left. Listeners can find the article online. Uh, can you tell us briefly why the association with the global political left has not been good for Arabs and what you would like to see instead? Yeah, it has been destructive, um, for sure. But I, I have no doubts about it. Um, 
because unfortunately a lot of lift so uh, modern thinking is western thinking that's that's it's western centric you you can't just get away from it this is not a blame it's just reality uh you know the 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 all modern political thought um all modern you know economic thought um all all modern you know psychoanalytic thought evolved in western society so naturally it will be western centric and whenever countries or uh, people from other societies want to adopt some of that thought it's always challenging um because of because of this part the leftist uh, thought which is now the dominant way of thinking among uh, sadly thinking people so if anybody thinking or want to be smart they immediately throw themselves into the ideas of the left and has this cultural hegemony over universities over research institutions globally over the most prestigious media outlets, um, it has a lot of biases, and I'll, those biases are anti-Western. Um, they are they are ideological, but they don't know the definition. By definition, ideologies don't realize they are ideologies. The left is an ideology. There's something called colonialism, uh, which the left thinks it's an objective analytical category is actually for me it's nothing but a polemical device ideological polemical device against whatever the left doesn't like capitalism and so on and so forth and in their own political project in their own western societies it's not that the left wants to go colonize egypt and saudi arabia they have no they want to get to power where they are which is naturally exactly like that you know the goal of the islamic movement of hamas is to get to power in the palestinian territories that's how 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 it is but in their pursuit they use people from de- underdeveloped countries by giving by making them victims against their own political adversaries so they use people like you know africans and arabs um they use them to uh, basically as a polemic as a v- as a conduit for an ideological polemic of western traditional culture christianity um, against uh, capitalism, um, against uh, just uh, uh, political institu- traditional political institutions um, in the West. This is is this is destructive. For example, a society like Egypt with so much social issues. We just talked right now, like we we spoke for only thirty minutes. We we, could, we didn't even scratch the surface when we spoke about prevalent anti-Semitism from children cartoons to religion to politics to everywhere. Um, discrimination against Christians, discrimination against black people. Uh, we didn't even talk about women, which is half, 50% of Egypt, um, and, the, and the major disabilities that they suffer. Actually, e- Egypt is one of the worst places for women. Sexual assault in Egypt is every, it's getting worse every day. There is a gradual moral erosion of moral restraints um, that is absolutely scary. And then you take those people and you channel all of their energies for anti-Western and anti-capitalist and anti-American imperialist uh, endeavor, that is exploitation. Um, this is responsible. This is what happened to the Arab world throughout the last seven years. It's what responsible for the loss of all of our intellectual energies that should have been channeled internally to address those issues. And instead, we invested them in the global battles of the global left um, to try to take down you know, the dominant position in the United States and dismantle global capitalism and so on and so forth. 
um, it truly prevented a lot of the countries in the Middle East, except actually the countries that were conservative and anti-leftist and were pro-United States, for example, the Arab Gulf. Those are an exception. Um, but for the other countries, they are less integrated in the international economy. They are actually live in poverty, political instability. All of this is a result of this. It was the left that prevented these countries from um, joining the globalization train. It's it, it was the left. And a lot of this legacy was just Islamized. For example, the Islamic revolution of Iran, it's an Islamic Leninist hybrid. Um, if you look closely at the ideology of the Islamic Republic, you'll find truly it's Marxist Leninism. It's just they replaced the rule of the intellectuals with the rule of, uh, you know, Islamic legalists. That's that's that, that basically just they translated it to those terms that don't have any precedent in Islamic history or Islamic law. Uh, the revolutionary reactionary thought that I spoke about, its source is revolutionary European thought that existed on a re reactionary uh, side and on the left side. And all of these um, issues have never been addressed, because, as I said, because the institutions or the global left or the international left, uh, and I'm here I'm not talking about conspiracy theory, it's actually happening, uh, I think, uh, not with an intention to exploit, but basically because people on the left are so ideological and so committed morally to what they think is a moral crusade, and they don't understand the amount of destruction that they are doing in other places. Um, in And this is the last example. Even universities, the issue of anti-Semitism that pretty much defined my life and defined the life and the legacy and the history and brought to end a long history of Jewish life in many Middle Eastern countries, in Egypt, in Iraq, in Yemen, um, in Libya, in Syria, in Lebanon, this issue is suppressed, concealed, because it does not fit the ideological interests, because it does not really talk about Western villainy and Western um, colonialism and how it destroyed and ruined the Middle East. I just got my um, my graduate degree from George Washington University, one of the most prestigious schools for international affairs, um, specialized in the Middle East. Thank you. Specialized in the Middle East. And... Uh, some of the most renowned worlds, I'm not going to mention names, but George Washington, it's known, like the names of the scholars there, some of the best in the world. And I tried to bring this issue up, like how how are we not talking about the expulsion of, mass expulsion of Jews from Arab countries as one of the defining um, or uh, moments of modern, modern Arab politics? No one wants to talk about it. No one wants to bring it up. Um, it does not just fit. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the story they want to tell. They want to talk about how the West colonized the Middle East, um, divided those states arbitrarily. This is a narrative that they have. Uh, they drew lines in the sands, straight lines, and I'm sure you heard this before, Sykes-Pico, and that destroyed the fabric of the region. So any political instability is the cause of this Western metal intervention. That's the story that they want to tell. If you want to talk about anything else, it doesn't fit. We're sorry. Um, so yeah, the, my article was basically talking about a lot of this. I mean, I'm, I'm still, I'm actually going to start working on a book detailed to show um, what exactly I mean and how it's important now for Arabs to leave all of this. Just care about themselves, think about themselves. Do not engage in global battles, international battles for, you know, the, the better future of humanity after capitalism. The, you know, no, focus on your own societies, work on your own societies, forget about the victimhood and colonialism and, and all of this, because this is how they get you. No, focus on yourself, focus on how to make your life better, how to make life for women better.
how to make the streets for women safer, how to get more economic opportunities for all of those young people, how to work with religious authority to counter this revolutionary Islam that destroyed, that brought so much destruction and pain and agony. This is where your energies need to go, not to be anti-capitalist and anti-Western and to and to, to invest all of your energy in a battle that you're not going to get anything out of. Well, the article is very powerful, The Liberation of the Arabs of the, from the Global Left. The book is Minority of One, The Unchaining of an Arab Mind. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today, Hussein. We wish you lots of good luck and success with your work. Thank you, Renee. I appreciate it. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.